And for those of you who stay, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And we're still looking at verses 5 to 15. So Matthew 10, 5 to 15. Lord willing, we'll fill out the rest of the outline today. Finish this section. Commission before the commission, part two. So Matthew 10, let's read the whole section, starting in verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, this is the huddle. Jesus gathers his men and he lays out the play to send them out for gospel ministry. This is also the commission before the Great Commission. Jesus appoints His men as apostles, messengers, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. This is also Evangelism 101, taught by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the great professor. He teaches us how to do it. He provides essential principles for evangelism, principles that we can still apply today as we go out as God's messengers. So if you're taking notes, I see him lay out six principles. Six principles for evangelism. And last week we covered three of them. Let's bring you up to speed. Principle number one, charged to go. Charged to go. Jesus sends his apostles out with a charge He says, go, which means move outward. And their first target is the house of Israel. Later we see the target expands to all nations. But the charge remains the same. Go, move outward to the lost in your community. So the question is, are you going? Are you participating in this commission? Point number two was proclaim as you go. Proclaim as you go. The message is simple. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king king has come. His name is Jesus. He's the promised Messiah, the only Savior. Repent and believe in Him for salvation. 
we proclaim Him, and we proclaim Him as we go. As we go evangelism. It doesn't have to be a special outreach event. Just be faithful as you go from barber to neighbor to home to workplace to birthday party to the park. Wherever we go and to whomever we go, Him we proclaim. Number three, motivated by grace. Motivated by grace. Jesus says, you received without paying. Give, therefore, without pay. What is grace? Grace is a free gift. A gift that you did not earn or deserve. Therefore, you give as you didn't earn. Everything you have is a gift from God, including the salvation by grace that you have in Jesus Christ. You know, they say if you want to really preach a a guilt-ridden sermon, if you really want to make your congregation feel guilty, preach on two subjects, evangelism or prayer. And that will make a lot of us feel guilty because we often feel like we're not doing enough of either of those things. Jesus, rather than preaching a guilt-ridden sermon on evangelism, says, I don't want you to be motivated by guilt. I want you to be motivated by God's grace. Really, be motivated by the overflow of grace. You're a thimble, and God's grace is an ocean. He has poured so much grace into your life. And allow the overflow of that joy, the graciousness that you've received, be the motive that pushes you outward. Let His grace push you out the door. Let grace be a topic of conversation with your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors. God has been so, so good to me. Can I share with you? How gracious the Lord has been. When you think about that person in front of you and and you need to get out of your comfort zone to just start a conversation about the Lord, think about all the blessings that you have in Christ. And think about how misunderstanding it would be, how misunderstanding it would be of grace if you didn't start the conversation. If you didn't introduce them to the Lord Jesus. Be motivated by grace to share the good news. Now, here's the fourth point. This is where we pick up today. The fourth principle for evangelism is depend on God. Depend on God. We'll pick it back up in verse 9. Look down at the text with me. Jesus says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. In other words, Jesus says, don't bring your just-in-case money. Don't bring your just-in-case money. When I was young, a boy, my dad, if I was going to a friend's house or to a place without my parents, my dad would always give me some cash. And I would say, Dad, I don't need the money. You know, Bob's dad has it covered. Or I'm going somewhere where I won't need money. He would always give me the money and say, hey, just-in-case. Just in case. Jesus says, you don't need that just in case money for where you're going. Depend on God. He will provide for you. He says, don't bring a bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals. This is the idea of extra. Don't pack a duffel with extra tunic, extra sandals. Again, just in case. You don't need it. Depend on God nor the staff. 
What, were the sta- what was the staff used for? It was used for support or extra protection on the journey. Jesus says, you don't need that either. God will provide and protect you on this journey. Depend on God. Depend on God. This is such an important principle for our lives, and especially important in evangelism. Because listen, it's not just that God is going to provide for you, it's not just that He's going to protect you, but God is also going to be the one doing the performance in your evangelism. It's the Lord who opens doors and opens conversations and ultimately opens hearts. So you're going to need to depend on Him. This isn't your endeavor, this is His endeavor. You depend on God to work through your witness, to grow the seed that you sow. Again, evangelism is not a self-dependent endeavor. It is a God-dependent endeavor. We need Him. We need the Lord. One of the best ways to increase your dependence in the Lord, especially in evangelism, is to pray. Pray, the very nature of prayer is an act of dependence. It's saying, God, I need you, right? So I would encourage you to pray before, pray during, and pray after your evangelism. Here's what it might look like. God, I pray that you would open doors today for gospel conversations. And that you would give me courage to walk through them. The person is in front of you. You're about to engage them in evangelism. Lord, give me the words to say. The words that this individual needs to hear who is maybe curious about you or asked a question of me. And then as you walk away, God, I pray that you would bear fruit from our conversation today. That you would work through the seed that I've sown in their hearts. Those are the prayers of a dependent evangelism, uh, evangelist. Not one who's saying it's all about me and my performance and my effort, but one that says, I'm depending on God all the way through this. Depend on the Lord. That's an important principle for evangelism. And Jesus is testing here the apostles' dependence. Are you depending on me? By telling them, don't bring the just-in-case baggage. You don't need it. Depend on the Lord. He will provide, He will protect, and He will perform through your witness. Why? Why will the Lord provide for His messengers, His workers? Here's an important line here at the end of verse 10. He says, For the laborer deserves his food. The laborer deserves his food. If you're a worker for Christ... If you're a messenger on his behalf, he's going to provide for you because you are working. And as a worker earns a wage, so Christ's messengers will be provided for. That's the principle here. He's not going to leave his workers hungry, homeless, without clothes, without support, or without protection. Faithful ministers should be provided for in their work. Now, I want to address a wrong application of this passage. Some churches adopt the philosophy of not paying their pastors based on this text. Or paying them very little. And they use this passage to justify it. They say, see, the minister shouldn't acquire any gold or silver or copper. He should be utterly dependent upon the Lord 
nor should a minister have anything extra. That would be a wrong application of this passage for two reasons. There are two passages that address that. Number one, you'll notice if you read further in the gospel that Jesus' instructions change for his apostles. In Luke chapter 22, verse 35, I'll put the verse up on the screen. He says to them, Hey, when I sent you out without a money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. God provided, right? God took care of his messengers, his ministers. But now notice the change in instruction. He says to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who doesn't have a sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now you're going to need it. So you're dependent upon me, ministers. Now I'm sending you out in harsher environments. People are going to be more critical of you. You're going to need those supplies. And God allowed them to take those supplies with them on their second commission. So this shows us that a literal application of sending out gospel ministers without money or supplies, that's not the takeaway from this text. The takeaway is their dependence upon the Lord in their ministry because the specific instruction changes further along in gospel ministry. Point number two, so the instructions change later, that's one. And two, Paul quotes this passage later in the New Testament. And he quotes this passage not to discourage paying pastors, but rather the opposite. He quotes Jesus' words to encourage us to provide for our pastors, to pay them. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Again, I have that passage on the screen for you. He says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy, deserving, same word there, of double honor. So not just the, the honor of receiving the spiritual benefit of disciples coming to know the Lord Jesus and growing in their faith, but the double honor is the physical benefit. That, that was understood to be the wages. He said, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, here's the first quote from Deuteronomy 25. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Here's the picture. They would have this animal working to tread grain, to stamp and grind up the grain. But if you put a muzzle on the animal, what does that prevent him from doing? From eating the grain benefiting from the reward of his work. This is similar to withholding pay from your pastor. You're making him work without a reward. And if God says that's cruel to do to an animal, how much crueler is it to do to the minister of God, the pastor? So that's the first scriptural quote. And then look at the second. Here's our passage. And, by the way, Scripture says, Jesus said what? The laborer deserves his wages. So those who labor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, earn their wage. Earn their wage. So I just want to address a wrong application of that text because it's often misused to say, don't pay ministers, don't pay evangelists or pastors. They shouldn't acquire any money or have anything extra. That's a wrong application. 
of that text. This was specific to the apostles' first journey outward, and it was meant so that they would be utterly dependent upon the Lord. And we ought to be dependent too in our evangelism. He's going to provide for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to perform. We need to, to, to depend on Him. And in the case for pastors today, He provides for them through the church, right? The giving of the church. In the apostles' case, in this first journey, God was going to provide to them through the hospitality of the people that they minister to, which takes us to point number five. Point number five, honor the receptive. Honor the receptive. Look at verse 11. He says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it. And stay there until you depart. So that's how God's going to provide for these messengers. He's going he's to have some people be hospitable towards them to welcome them in, to allow them to lodge and stay. But the the people they have to find are the ones who are worthy. That's kind of an interesting way to put it, isn't it? How do we know who is worthy? What does that mean? I don't know if I'm a messenger for Christ. I might be looking for the houses with an espresso machine or or maybe a Keurig so I can get my coffee. Who am I looking for? Who's worthy? Who's worthy to host these messengers? Well, Jesus gives pretty specific instructions to figure out who's worthy. And they continue. Look at verse 12. He says, as you enter the house, greet it. Now, the greeting is universal. This is what you do with anybody or everybody that you come into contact with. So you greet every house you enter. This is just the polite thing to do. This is like, the industry standard, hello, how are you, right? That implies you want to have a further conversation. That's what this greeting is, very general. The greeting's universal. But then he continues, look at verse 13. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Now, this is something else. This isn't just a greeting. This is a peace. He says, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Okay, so the greeting is universal, but the peace is conditional. You see, only if they're worthy do they get your peace. Now, what do we mean by that word peace? What's special about it? That word, that word peace in the Greek is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word. Shalom. That's the Jewish, the Hebrew greeting. And that communicates not only, hi, how are you? That communicates, we have a relationship. I welcome you. I embrace you. We live in harmony together. That's a greeting from a a Jew to another Jew within the same community. Neighbors, friends, allies. So think about what Jesus is saying here. Give them a universal greeting. Test the waters. Get into a conversation And depending upon if they're worthy or not will depend on whether you give them the the right hand of fellowship, in a sense. Your shalom, your peace. Now again, we think, but how do we know if they're worthy? Follow the Lord here as he's explaining these instructions to his apostles. 
And the answer we'll find in verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, then shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Okay, so very clearly from this passage or from this verse, we see who the unworthy are. Who are the unworthy? Those who do not receive the messenger or listen to their message. So what is the implication? Who are the worthy? Those who receive. Those who receive the messenger and receive the message that they proclaim. They are receptive. They are receptive. Those are the ones, Jesus says, that you need to look out for, that you need to pay special attention to, that, you, that, that God has prepared for the message. And, and the fruit of their receptiveness is evidence that God is preparing them to be a disciple. Isn't that helpful? Think about it. When you go out to do evangelism, maybe you're going on an outreach or even sharing with your neighbors, what are you looking for? You're looking to first proclaim the message faithfully, and you're looking for a receptive response. Are they listening to you? Or do they say, ah, nope, sorry, don't want to hear that, walk away? Are they welcoming of you? Do they ask questions to further the conversation? Do you sense from them a sincere curiosity that keeps them there while you're explaining it to them? And as you walk away, do you find yourself keeping contact with them? All of a sudden, wait a minute, this person showed up to church. And this person stuck around. They didn't just go away. But there's actually fruit of receptiveness. Jesus says, those, those are your people. Those are the receptive. Those are the ones that you give your right hand of fellowship to. Those are believers, disciples that are coming into discipleship. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for receptiveness. So this is a really helpful principle, I think, for what we should look for as evangelism. Listen, we're, we're called to go everywhere and preach the gospel to everyone. And as you do this, the gospel works. You will notice some are actually listening to you. Some are actually responding positively. And you're not looking for short-term growth or just a, a, a temporary excitement, but they continue to follow. They continue to receive. They stick around and they come along. These are your people. And I'll just share with you, I think in evangelism, it's easy to overlook these people for the sake of the crowds. Uh, I'll explain through a, a ministry experience. I remember in youth ministry, there was a season where um, we had a campus ministry that was thriving, growing, like massive numbers. I remember at one high school, Paloma Valley High School, we had this strong inflow of football players and cheerleaders, the quote-unquote popular kids. I remember one lunch, we had at least, we had 150, I think at one point we had 180 students in this multi-purpose room, and I'm preaching the gospel. And they're all coming and hearing and listening it was really, really exciting, right? Look at how many people I'm sharing the gospel with. But of course, the excitement eventually ended, right? The football players and the cheerleaders found something more entertaining to do at lunch, more exciting. And the majority of them moved on. 
And I remember the conversation turned to, man, how can we get the crowds back? How do we get those football players back in through the door? Do we need to bring pizza and cupcakes? Do we need to bring more pizza? And all the while, there are two football players that stayed. Logan and Lucas Scott, two brothers. And one cheerleader stayed, Nicole Schmitz. And they stuck around. And they came back. Their friends weren't coming back, but they kept coming back. And they were receptive. They're asking questions. They didn't just come to the campus ministry. They started coming to the youth group. They started attending church. Nicole invited her grandmother. She got baptized. She was saved. And now, in God's providence, Nicole Schmitz is Nicole Tanawi, my sister-in-law. She married Bree's brother, Nick. They were receptive. They kept coming back. And I think it's a real shame that for us to think, oh man, the crowds went away, but here the Lord brought disciples. These are our people. These are the people we need to invest into and disciple. I think it's really easy to let the tail wag the dog in evangelism. The goal is not to preach to big crowds. That's a means to an end. The goal is to find those people that God has deemed worthy. God is prepared for discipleship. And you will know them by their receptiveness. These are the people that we should be following up with. Even if you think about the apostles as they went out and launched the church, they didn't throw together these revival tents and and blow through cities and towns just preaching the gospel and then going to the next place. Preaching the gospel and going to the next place. You know what they did? They preached to crowds. Those who heard and believed were receptive, gathered together. And the apostles spent years with those people, discipling them, helping them to mature, planting a church, establishing elders, and then they went to the next town. That's what Paul did in Corinth. He spent a year and a half with those who were receptive after the call, the proclamation of the gospel. So look for those who are receptive. If they're not, share Christ and move on. Share Christ and move on. Take the pressure of their response off of your shoulders because it doesn't depend on you. So go everywhere, preach the gospel to everyone. Look especially for those who are receptive, those who welcome you and your message. Those are your people. Give them your shalom. And if they reject you and your message, point number six, the last point, leave the rejectors to the judge. Leave the rejectors to the judge. What do I do with people who say, I'm not interested and walk away? What do I do with, with people that you know, make fun of me or mock me when I'm out there on the streets handing out tracts or evangelizing? Leave them to the judge. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Here's the right hand of fellowship. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. There's no shalom between you and the rejecter. There's no harmony between you two. No relationship. Move along. And then he says in verse 14, If anyone will not receive you, 
or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or, or sorry, that house or town. Now, the adage of shaking the dust off your feet has this idea of cursing the place, denouncing it, disassociating yourself from them. It's this idea of saying, I warned them, I warned them, now let me not be charged for their rejection. Let me not be charged for even having their filth on my shoes. That's strong language, isn't it? That's a strong denouncing. The prophet Nehemiah uses similar language in the Old Testament. There were rich people in Israel taking advantage of the poor, and Nehemiah called them out. He called on them to repent. He called them to give back the interest that they stole from these poor people. And Nehemiah says this in Nehemiah 5.13. He says, I also shook out the fold of my garment. He said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. In a sense, Nehemiah said, I'm wiping my hands with these people. I have no control over their actual repentance. So I don't want to be charged for their sin. If they don't repent, if they don't keep their promise, then they are exposed before God. I did everything I could. And the rest is up to Him. I think that's important and helpful as we go out and evangelize. Listen, as much as you love people, as much as you have compassion for them and their lostness and their sinful state, as much as you want to, as much as you try to, you cannot change people's hearts. You can't save them. You can't affect their response to the message of the gospel. You need to free yourself from that burden this morning. All you can do is proclaim and be faithful to proclaim. Don't place the added burden on your shoulders of trying to change their hearts because you can't do it. You need to leave them. Leave them. Move on. And go to the next person, the next crowd, the next town. People are accountable to God for the rejection of the gospel. You're only accountable to share it. This should take a great weight off of your shoulders. The pressure is not on you to affect their response. Leave them to the Lord. We sow seed. We don't grow it. God does. Or He doesn't. We leave it in His hands. We leave it to Him. Now, what kind of judgment can rejectors of the gospel expect? Jesus gives a very serious warning in verse 15. Look down, with, look down at the text with me. This is a serious warning for those who reject the gospel. He says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, than for that person implied, than for that house. J.C. Ryle says it is a very dangerous thing to reject the gospel. I don't need to remind you, or maybe just a subtle reminder of who the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were. 
It's that city in Genesis that God burned alive. It's the city filled with men who tried to molest angels. They were very twisted and perverted. Egregious sinners. And God judged them ruthlessly for it. He sent fire and brimstone from heaven on those people. And they serve as an example to the rest of history of what a righteous God does to sin. Unrepented sin. Now what kind of warning or what kind of message did Sodom and Gomorrah receive? This is the extent of it. Turn from your wickedness. That's all they got. Repent. No offer of salvation. Just turn. Repent. Of course they didn't. And God judged them. Now, what do we receive today? We receive a more elaborate message, don't we? We don't get just an offer of judgment or a command to turn. We get the proclamation of the gospel. We are offered salvation. We're offered eternal life. We're offered hope. We're offered an escape from our judgment. That is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bridge you must cross, the door you must enter, the lifeline you must entrust your life to. And if you do, you'll be saved. If you repent from your sin and trust your life to Him, you're saved from judgment, and not just saved from judgment, but saved into eternal life, saved into His kingdom. That's why it's good news. The gospel is good news. Sodom and Gomorrah did not get the gospel. And that was their judgment. So how much worse will it be for those who are offered the gospel but reject it? Saying, I don't want that. And continue to live in my sinful lifestyle. Continue to live the way that I want to live. I don't need Jesus. How much worse will the judgment be for those people? Hebrews 2.3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I hope that's not you today. J.C. Ryle writes this, he said, Men are apt to forget that it doesn't require great open sins to ruin their souls forever. He says they have to only go on hearing without believing. Listening without repenting. Going to church without going to Christ. And by and by they will find themselves in hell. The same place as the egregious sinner. Oh man, this truth, leaving those who reject Christ to the judge, is a sobering truth, isn't it? It it should sober us as God's messengers and it also should make us urgent have a strong desire to get the gospel, the message of salvation, out to people. But it sobers us up because in one hand, you hold the key that will open the door of the kingdom to the lost. The gospel. You have that message. You have the key that will open the door of the kingdom to the lost and broken sinners who repent and believe. And in the other hand, you have lead stones that will sink them into the depths of hell if they reject it. A sober responsibility as a messenger of God. 
So this truth sends us out soberly but urgently to get the gospel out to as many as we can, as many who will receive him and repent of their sins and give their life to Jesus Christ. But remember this, and let this weight come off of your shoulder, evangelist. Their response is not your responsibility. Don't bear that burden. Don't bear that burden. Leave it to the Lord. Leave it to the judge over heaven and earth. Leave it to the Savior. I know for parents with children who are lost and wayward, that is not comforting. Because as much as we want to as parents, we want to affect their salvation. We can't. We can only be faithful to proclaim it. And only be faithful to exemplify it to them. And then pray like crazy that God would change them. Depend on the Lord in your evangelistic parenting. Depend on the Lord. Pray that God would change their hearts and transform their lives. So there are the principles from the great professor Jesus Christ. Evangelism 101. Let's review. First, we are charged to go. So let's go. Are you going? Let's do this. Second, we proclaim as we go. We don't proclaim when we go or where we go. As we go. This is a natural outflow of our lives. Third, be motivated by grace. Not by guilt. Not by greed. But motivated by grace. The overflow of God's grace out to those around you. Fourth, depend on God. Depend on God. You need Him. Don't depend on yourself. Don't depend on your, your tricks and your tools and your, your helps. Depend on the Lord. Right? It doesn't mean you don't go out with a plan. It's good to go out with a plan, but ultimately you depend on Him. Number five, you honor the receptive. You're looking for people who would receive the gospel, who are receptive to you as a messenger and to your message. And you're looking for those signs of receptiveness. And sixthly, lastly, soberly, leave the rejecter to the judge. That's all you can do. Proclaim Christ and move on. Simple enough, right? Evangelism isn't difficult. It's, it's nerve-wracking. It's, it's scary. But the Lord gives us really simple principles to employ. And I think if we employ these principles faithfully in our lives as we go, we'll be a faithful witness. And we'll watch as more receptive people walk through these doors and the church increases and grows. Not because of what we did, because of us, but because of God, the great Savior, the great King, who we represent and we go out as ambassadors for. I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word this morning, but doers and appliers of this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask same thing that I just said. I ask that you would make us doers of the word and not just hearers. Pray that you would prepare us to be effective witnesses, fruitful messengers of Christ. God, I, I lift up just as I'm thinking about the sober reality of the last point. 
that there might be some in this room who still sit under the judge, Christ as judge. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They have not repented of their sins. They have not entrusted their life to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And as they stand, they stand or they sit under judgment if they would not repent. God, I ask that you would work in their heart even now, that they would receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who came and lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to suffer the punishment for sins, and who rose again from the dead to give us eternal life in him. I pray that they would receive that message by faith, that you would do the work that only you can do, and you would grow the seed planted in their heart, and that they would respond in repentance and faith and entrust themselves to Christ and Christ alone. And they would not know him as judge, but know him as king, know him as savior, know him as high priest. Pray that some might receive Christ even this morning. They would be receptive to the gospel. And God, again, I ask that you would soberly but urgently send us out to unbelievers around us to be faithful witnesses of you. In Jesus' name, amen.